are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. American History X, which came out in 1998. It was directed by Tony Kay and Edward Norton. It stars Edward Norton, Edward Furlong, Beverly D'Angelo, Jennifer Lean, Ethan Suppley, Feruza Balk, Elliot Gould, Stacey Keach, Guy Torrey, William Russ, and Avery Brooks. The genre would be family drama. Derek Vineyard was released from Chino early this morning. Hey, man, how you doing? Too big to give me a hug? Oh, it's good to see you. Check this out, man. When'd you get that? What? Well, I came to talk about Danny. He's headed right where you are. What's wrong with you? Let the kid alone. He thinks the joint messed with your mind. It did. I'm asking you to do whatever's in your power. You know what you're going to do? You can get me shot by a bunch of white boys. I am out, and Danny is out too. And if you come near my family again, I will feed you your heart. What's happening, Dad? I don't think you realize what's been going on here. We are ten times what we were. They're after you, man. They're going to come for me. They're going to come for me. There ain't nothing I can do. Hey, Danny! Get it! I love you and you're my best friend. And I'm not telling you what to do, but I need you to understand. I remember seeing this in a packed theater in Georgetown when it first came out in 98. To say it was a visceral experience was kind of an understatement. I don't think I've ever heard so many nervous gasps in an audience. Tony Kay, mostly before Norton took over during post, as has been reported since his release, directed a very searing portrait of two brothers, Daniel and Derek Vineyard who have immersed themselves in hate and bigotry. The older brother, Derek, and the character we spend the most time with, he's kind of the central protagonist, is played by Edward Norton in a balls-out performance for which he was nominated for an Oscar, and should have won. Things escalate in this story to the point where we witness his character commit a murderous act so egregiously brutal that I remember my first reaction being incredulous that it was only the kind of thing that could happen in a movie. Just fucked with the wrong bull. Come, Come here! You should have learned your place on the fucking basketball court. But you fucking monkeys never get the message. My father gave me that truck, you motherfucker. You ever shoot at violence? You come here, you shoot at my family? I'm gonna teach you a real lesson now, motherfucker. Put your fucking mouth on the curb. Put it on the curb right now! That's it. Imagine my horror finding out years later that it was actually a real thing that hate groups and or homicidal gangs would do to someone called curbing. Yeah. No, this film does not pull any punches. Much of it takes place in prison where Derek finds himself after this incident aligned to a white nationalist gang after he's already been a neo-Nazi starting his own gang. And things go awry with this gang resulting in another brutal scene taking place in the prison shower where I am still at a loss as to how this particular moment is filmed unflinchingly but strangely with some poetry to it. All of the prison scenes, along with some other flashbacks, are filmed in black and white. There are also some very effective slow-motion images. Apparently, Tony Kay was also the cinematographer, and he just shows a knack for making the unthinkable look jaw-droppingly cinematic. 
It's scary, but it's pristine at the same time. Just kind of hard to explain. And it has a weird effect on the viewer for sure. This is especially demonstrated during the scene from this movie, which has often been the most criticized and also the most mocked. (laughs) The Venice Beach basketball face-off between Derek's neo-Nazis and a local black gang, which has already ruled the courts. Hey! I got a bet. I come in this game right now. Same score, but we play black guys against the white guys. Damn your price, cracker. No money, no money for these courts. And not just today, for good. If you win, we will walk away. But if we win, no bitching, no fighting. Right here in front of everybody, you pack up your shit and get your black asses out of here. Hey man, fuck that, take this bitch. This is your shit. Eight to six, our ball. Let's go. The way this sequence is both shot and scored, with triumphant music billowing as we watch Derek incredulously dunk game point for the racists, it's both laughably ridiculous, but it also feels somewhat like it's actually white nationalist propaganda. Which I think, think, might have been the point, as this whole sequence is being recollected as a fond memory by Daniel, impressively played by Edward Furlong, and what I feel like has to be a career performance for him. He has always looked up to his older brother, so it makes sense that he would see this whole incident through strangely rose-colored glasses. Venice Beach didn't always look like this. It used to be a great neighborhood. The boardwalk's always been a dump, but when my dad moved us out here, Venice was a nice, quiet place to grow up. Over the years, though, it's just gone to hell. That's why Derek started the DOC. He said white kids shouldn't have to walk around scared in their own neighborhood. For a while there, he really made it like it was ours again. Like I said, this film just goes for broke throughout. Choices are made with regards to editing and story, which truly walk a high-wire act liable to plummet at any moment. And now a spoiler alert, just in case you don't want the ending spoiled for this particular movie. Spoiler alert. Here we go. Now, for me, the story never does plummet, all the way to a truly heartbreaking conclusion, which I know I did not see coming, nor did anyone else around me. Get out of my way! All right, all right! Get out of my way! All right, all right, let him go! Oh, no! It's a gut punch for sure. It always made thematic sense for Derek, the older brother, to suffer a violent death as a consequence for his own violent acts. So many shot selections in that third act seem to be hinting at that to come. But of course, it's not him who we watch die. Cannily, we hear Furlong narrating even after this point, which seems a strange choice. But after all, his narration was just all stemming from a paper that he'd already completed by the time he dies. So I guess this is where I tell you what I learned. My conclusion, right? Well, my conclusion is, 
hate is baggage. Life's too short to be pissed off all the time. It's just not worth it. Could this all come off as shamelessly manipulative? Of course, and in some ways it is, but it still feels earned and provides the necessary powerhouse ending to a story which veered away from subtlety at the very beginning. Spoiler over now for the ending. Rewatching it now, American History X has some obvious flaws that were always there. There's a ham-fisted flashback involving Derek learning racism from his father at the dinner table, which really never worked for me. It just felt too on the nose. Yeah, sure, everything's equal now. But I got two guys watching my back responsible for my life who aren't as good as two other guys. You only got the job because they were black, not because they were the best. That, that sucks. Yeah. Is that what America's about? No, America's about best man for the job. You do your best, you get the job. You know, this affirmative action crap. I don't know what that's about. There's like some hidden agenda or something going on. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I don't know. I didn't think about it like that. Though all of the performances in that scene still really work, including from William Russ, who plays Derek and Daniel's father. And then there is Ethan Suppley, likely giving the most over-the-top performance in the movie. I mean, he's clearly having some fun here as the fat Nazi goon Seth, but his character is still written a bit too cartoonishly at times to be taken seriously. Tell me some of the shit you've learned, fuckass, before I pistol whip you. Okay. I believe in death, destruction, chaos, filth, and greed. Cut the shit, Dan. Come on. Tell me what I want to hear, asshole. And then there's Avery Brooks, who I'll get to in just a bit. But overall, this is a powerful film that's certainly not an easy watch but still effective and often even very entertaining. I mean, just as an example, Guy Tory almost steals the movie in several scenes playing Lamont, a mostly comedic performance as a fellow prisoner, a black prisoner, who befriends Derek at the strangest possible time. His character provides some very necessary tension-breaking humor, which still feels rooted in character. You got a woman? Yeah, you got a woman, man. Let me give you some advice, all right? She comes to visit you. Whatever you do, no matter what, don't let her leave you in a fight, man. Don't let her walk out of here with a bad attitude, because if you do, you spend the next week wondering if she's out there getting her fuck on with somebody else. You know what I'm saying? This is just such a unique film that does so many different things, and it remains one of the better films of the 1990s. Man, send her away, float, all right? Because it's not like the real world, you know what I'm saying, where you can fight, but it's cool to fight because you can make up and have that make-up sex, you know what I'm saying, that angry sex, that sex with an attitude. It's that pow, pow, pow. Let her get on top. And she's going to punish you first, right? You've been a bad boy, huh? You've been a bad boy, and I'm going to punish you. I'm going to put it on you. Don't you ever let me catch you looking at another woman. Yeah, yeah. I may forgive you if you bring it. I think I can. I, I forgive. I forgive. Oh, right there. Right there. You're hitting it. My spot. That's it. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, for, I forgive you. I forgive you. I, for, I, for, I, for, I forgive you. I love you. <laughs> and this brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. The score for this film was composed by Anne Dudley, who is a British musician and was also a former member of the synth-pop band Art of Noise back in the 1980s. She's conducted the scores for more than 40 movies over the past 30-plus years, and they are an eclectic bunch. During the 1990s, she became a strong go-to person for providing memorable music for a string of notable smaller indie films, many of them among my favorites from that time period, including former episode The Crying Game, 
Future episode, The Mighty Quinn, Say Anything, and she even won an Oscar for her score for The Full Monty. Like I said, eclectic, because the following year after The Full Monty, her score for this movie would be literally the exact opposite. Orchestral, melancholy, and often melodramatic. It's not subtle, but it's not meant to be. And at certain points in the movie, it really packs a punch when it's accompanying what we see on screen. For me, the most effective musical moment actually comes towards the end of this movie. Both brothers have fully reconciled after Norton's Derek explains to his younger brother his entire eye-opening experience while in prison. They're on the same page now, and they just took the time to remove all Nazi paraphernalia from Daniel's bedroom. They are now both intent on leaving this life. And we see a quick silent flashback to them as young kids on the beach. And then we cut to Daniel in the shower. The water is cascading down on his face in slow motion. I'm pretty sure this is meant to be a callback to the harrowing sequence earlier when he was raped in prison in the showers. Only this time, it feels as if he's now being cleansed from his experiences. Only, has he? The camera follows him out of the shower, now looking at the mirror, where he is reminded that he still has a large Nazi symbol tattooed on his chest. The semi-defeated look on his face as he puts one hand over the symbol, it's very affecting. And the strings that we hear from Dudley's score just accentuate it further. This track is fittingly called Two Brothers. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now back to Avery Brooks. He's pretty much been good in everything I've seen. But wow, I don't know what to make of his performance in this movie. Whether it's actually good or not, I'm really not sure. He plays the school principal who advocates for both brothers, especially Derek, while he's in jail. Right now your anger is consuming you. Your, your anger is shutting down the brain God gave you. You know, man, you've been talking about what's going on in me since I was in high school. How the fuck do you know so much about what's going on inside me? No, I know about me. I know about this place. I know about the place you are in. What do you, what do you know about the place I'm in? There was a moment when I used to blame everything and everyone for all the pain and suffering and vile things that happened to me that I saw happen to my people. Blame everybody. Blame white people. Blame society. Blame God. I didn't get no answers because I was asking the wrong questions. And he has some genuinely powerful moments with Norton, but is also saddled with a never-ending stream of motivational speak coming from his character. It just becomes almost too much. Now, I think Brooks is doing the best he can with it, but he occasionally delivers his words of wisdom in a staccato manner, apparently for effect, but it just doesn't always land for me. It just never sat well with me, even though I could see what they're going for with this character and this performance. Mein Kampf? I should spell you. Go ahead. Well, you don't think I could handle it? No, I think the street would kill you. Your rhetoric and your propaganda aren't going to save you out there. So here's the drill. I'm your history teacher from now on. We will discuss current events. We will call this class American History X. 
The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, along those lines, yes, there is a decent share of on-the-nose dialogue throughout this screenplay by David McKenna, even from our main character himself. However, for the most part, the dialogue rings very true, even at its most disturbing. And this is especially evident during an extended sequence shot in black and white, which occurs roughly halfway through the movie. A sort of introductory dinner, including the Vineyard family and Murray, the local high school teacher played by Elliot Gould, whom D'Angelo's Doris, their mother, is now dating. Seeing as to how their father tragically passed away just a couple of years prior, there was obviously simmering tension directed towards Murray by Derek, who by this point had become a full-on skinhead. The main topic of discussion at the dinner table is the recent Rodney King trial and the resulting riots around Los Angeles resulting from its controversial verdict. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yep, if you were around at this time, this was obviously a very contentious subject of conversation playing out everywhere. You could not avoid it. Dinner tables, talk shows, college campuses, literally everywhere imaginable in the years before social media really took hold. It was hard to not have an opinion on this, and what's striking about this scene is Norton's performance at the center of it, as he can often veer quite seamlessly between sounding reasonable on the subject matter and revealing his extreme prejudices. If he had, though, I mean, come on, think about it. If that fucking monkey had run some kid over, everybody would have a very different opinion of this whole matter. You know, they'd be focused on, on Rodney King and not on these officers, but instead, he just attacked a few cops. And so and all of a sudden, it's hands across America for this fucking total son of a bitch. I mean, it blows my mind. We're so hung up on this notion that we have some obligation to help this struggling black man, you know, cut him some slack until he can overcome these historical injustices. It's crap. This stuff you guys are saying just perpetuates it. All this liberal nonsense, you know, everyone's turning and looking the other way while our country rots from the inside out. I mean, Christ, Lincoln freed the slaves. What, like... 130 years ago, how long does it take to get your act together? Well, Jews have been persecuted for over 5,000 years. Are you saying that it's wrong to feel sensitive about anti-Semitism? Sadly and predictably, we witness these tensions eventually boil over into more personal matters, and what started out as a merely spirited discussion explodes into both violent threats and actions from Derek himself. Yeah, this is often a very upsetting sequence to watch, and that's pretty much the point. It's the standout dramatic sequence of the movie, very much due to just how raw and real it feels. What are you doing, Derek? This is your family. Right, my family. My family. So you know what? I don't give two shits about you or anybody else or what you think. You're not a part of it, and you never will be. That has nothing to do with it. Oh, it doesn't? You don't think I see what you're trying to do here? You think I'm going to sit here and smile while some fucking kite tries to fuck my mother? It's never going to happen, Murray. Fucking forget it. Not on my watch. Not while I'm in this family. I will fucking cut your Shylock nose off and stick it up your ass before I let that happen. Coming in here and poisoning my family's dinner with your Jewish, nigger-loving, hippie bullshit. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, walk out. And that brings us to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Whenever revisiting this movie, it always comes back to two key figures. The first would, of course, be Edward Norton. He plays all facets of this character to the point where you can see why just so many would be drawn to him as a leader. His Derek can come off as so intelligent and relatable in the lead-up to him becoming ferocious. I'm even comfortable saying that might be Norton's best performance. And the crazy thing is that this came out amidst a slew of other great performances. In Fight Club, Primal Fear... Previous episode, Rounders, 25th Hour, People vs. Larry Flint. No small feat to stand out among that group of performances. Beyond that, there is the film's original director. 
Tony Kay, who before and since this movie has mostly specialized in documentaries. Now, Kay was a first-time feature director at the time, who had unfortunately built a contentious relationship with both the star and the studio. As director, he was often pushing for more and more scenes, more characters, and just expanding the overall story to have a scope well beyond the Vineyard Brothers. Sadly, this was never to be, as both the studio and the star wanted this to remain a more straightforward family drama, topping out at around two hours. And as a result, Kay was pushed out of the editing process, with Edward Norton taking things over. The film is, is good. It begins to probe and explore. Had I been permitted to complete my work, the film would have been great. My vision of the film never made it to the screen because Edward Norton, the actor, was permitted by the producers to edit and alter the film. Increasing the role of his own performance while decreasing the integrity of the picture. In essence, becoming the film's director in the end. Even though it has its flaws, this is a very powerful film, which undoubtedly benefited from the talents of both individuals. Now, personally, I would love to eventually see the three-hour director's cut of this movie, which Kay was hoping to have released. And unfortunately, it's not likely to happen. So what we're seeing is basically Norton's interpretation for his vision of the movie, with the foundation laid out especially visually by Kay, as he also worked as cinematographer. And as a result, I find it best to anoint both Edward Norton and Tony Kay as co-MVPs. Yeah, I was very, very proud of it. I'm, I'm very proud of the picture. I think, I think it's provocative. I don't think it's controversial, though, because I think at the end it has a very unequivocal human message, which is that there is a terrible, terrible, tragic consequence to making these kinds of choices and to letting anger and the hate that comes out of it rule your life. And that, and so I felt, for all the intensity of some of the moments in it, I felt very comfortable and and happy with it because I feel this, the me that message is very strongly delivered at the end. My rating for American History X would be four and three-quarter stars out of five. This movie is definitively not an easy watch, though admittedly, I have found it over the past several decades to be increasingly rewatchable. I've just always found it to be a very absorbing story, generally beautifully executed. Happy 25th anniversary to what remains one of the more affecting dramas of the 1990s, featuring what I consider to be an all-time performance by its star. And if you're looking to watch American History X, it is currently streaming on Fubo, Paramount Plus, and Showtime. And that ends another incendiary review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.